You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise you for your love, your mercy, and your grace that holds us fast. Pray now that your spirit will be poured out upon us in the reading and preaching of your word. Help me in my weakness, all of us in our weakness, that we might not just be hearers today, but that we would respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. Uh, It's great to be with you. Um, Been out of town with my family on vacation for uh, the last two Sundays, so really grateful. This is actually my first Sunday back in here in the sanctuary in a while, so it's really wonderful to be here with you. And those of you who are joining us online, I'm really grateful that you can be with us as well. We are in a sermon series this summer that we're calling Practicing the Good Life. We're encouraging you to take a little bit of time this summer to ask some deeper questions of reflection about your life, um, especially as you plan to kind of head back into a busy fall again. To ask, you know, is the life that you were living before, before the pandemic, um, is that the life you want to be living now? Uh, Maybe there were some things about your life that you shouldn't go back to. Uh, Maybe there were some practices or some busyness or some ways that you handled your schedule that you want to do differently. Maybe there are ways that you could order your life differently that are more in line with God's vision of goodness. So that's what we're looking at um, this summer. And today we're looking at another invitation from the Lord, and this is his invitation to know and to be known. And I'll share more about that, what I mean, in just a moment. So let's hear from um, Emily and Lydia and Avery Ellen, who are going to be reading to us uh, Psalm 139. It's a long psalm, so I would, if you have a Bible available, it might be helpful for you to read along. There's one in the pew, or if you brought your own, or you can look on your phone. So let's hear God's word, um, Psalm 139. A reading from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light as you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My flame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Will I count them? They would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am with. I am still with you. 
If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of, of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in Babylon against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his book called uh, The Gift of Knowing Yourself, uh, Christian psychiatrist David Benner tells a story about a man that he worked with, one of his clients, um, who is a really successful pastor and preacher. Uh, This guy was pretty well known, had a really good reputation of being someone who was a really powerful communicator, could preach God's Word with great clarity and great winsomeness. Um, He would often have moments of significant self-disclosure in his sermon. He He appeared to be very self-aware, mature, um, able to be vulnerable before God and others. So it came as a particular shock to his congregation when this whole scandal began to spiral out around him um, as it was discovered that he had had an affair with a person in the church, as it was discovered that he had been misusing um, the church funds. And really, over uh, a couple of weeks, it just became apparent that this guy, um, the persona uh, that he had been presenting in his public self was very different than the private self that he was battling against internally. That there was this vast chasm uh, between the self that he had carefully cultivated and presented to the world and his own internal battles that he was fighting. And this, at some point, this was exposed in the lie that was his life was shattered. You know, it's sad. One of the things that's so sad about this story is it's so familiar is so familiar, and especially among Christians, especially among well-known Christian pastors. And what's striking is that this man had, was not lacking about knowledge of God and knowledge of the Bible and knowledge of theology and the Christian life. But what's clear is that he had an incredibly superficial, shallow understanding of himself and his own interior battles. And because he did not know himself, or because he was unwilling to look at himself, he was unable to apply the truths of God and the gospel to the darkness in his own soul. Our focus today is something pretty heavy, and it's something that Christians don't actually talk about very often, and that is self-knowledge. Self-knowledge and self-understanding that comes through the practice of self-examination. Now, I'm guessing that some of you uh, immediately are thinking, oh, please, preacher, do we really need to bring this sort of secular psycho babble of self-discovery um, into the church? You, you may have um, seen this New Yorker cartoon at some point where a woman is at a, a dinner party and she says, I don't know anybody here but the hostess, and of course, in a deeper sense, myself. And this just sort of exhibits some of the ridiculousness of what the modern secular self-discovery movement has often become, which is really just a twisted form of self-absorption. And we need to be wary of that. Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 8 um, to 
reject uh, the puffed-up self-preoccupation of the self that leads us away from God and others. But that's not what I'm talking about today. Uh, the Bible and the Christian tradition is full of encouragement towards self-awareness and self-examination, but never for the purpose of self-inflation, always for the purpose of transformation, that you might become more and more like Christ. So here's just a few voices from our tradition. St. Augustine in the fourth century said, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Thomas Akempis, a medieval theologian, wrote, a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than search after deep learning. John Calvin, our reformed forebear, wrote, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Scripture exhorts us to this. Lamentations 3, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Paul writes of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, let a person examine themselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then in later in the second letter, he says, examine yourselves, know yourselves to see and test whether you are of the faith. So this call to know yourself is actually part and parcel of what it means to live a abundant Christian life. Ruth Haley Barton puts it this way, self-examination leads us to a greater sense of God's constant loving presence in our life, fosters a celebration of our created self, and offers us a safe place to see and name those places where we are not like Christ. And it opens us up to deeper levels of spiritual transformation. So you can see why what I'm talking about today is really different than like the secular psychological practice of self-discovery, because whereas the, that is more about grounding it in the self, this is about honestly opening yourself up to the transformation that God desires to bring. And on the flip side, friends, I would just say this. If you do not engage in the practice of self-examination and work to understand who you are, then you may very well end up with a life like that pastor. It might not be as dramatic, but I promise you, you will end up with a divided life. You will end up with a life in which your public self is different than your inner self. You will may end up with a life of hiding and certainly in which the dark things in your soul will come spilling out in unhealthy ways. This can result in relationships that are harmed and marriages that are betrayed and families that are destroyed, churches that are torn apart. Endless number of people can be damaged. Without a practice of self-examination, we harm ourselves, we harm each other, and we bring harm to the cause of the gospel in the world. We need a revolution in the Christian community, a revolution of truth and integrity and wholeness. People who are willing to honestly know themselves and to bring the whole of who they are under submission to God for his transforming work. So how do we do that, right? That's a tall order. Well, Psalm 139 gives us a wonderful picture of a person who is looking to God and all of God's power and grace, and out of knowledge of God flows a knowledge of the self. And that's the key difference between self-discovery and self-examination. The first is rooted in the self, and the second is rooted in God and God's own knowledge of me. So this says the psalm, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me 
and lead me in the way everlasting. What's clear to David throughout this psalm is that God knows him thoroughly. He knows everything about him, everything through and through. And yet David is aware that he does not fully know himself. So he is asking God here, God, will you show me me? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Moses in Exodus says, God, show me you. Here, David says, show me me. (laughs) Show me who I am. Let me see myself as you see me, that I might walk in the fullness of life. So let's look at several ways that this psalm encourages us to know ourselves. So first, the first thing we see is it says, know your goodness. Know your goodness. There's so much in this psalm that's just about receiving and celebrating who God made you to be. Unfortunately, in our tradition, in like sort of the Reformed evangelical tradition, there's a really strong emphasis on the fact that we're sinners, saved by grace, which we are, but there is often a forgetfulness that the biblical story does not begin with the truth of our sinfulness. It begins with the truth of our goodness, that we are people who are made good and pronounced good by a loving creator God. And the psalm affirms it boldly. It says, verse 13, for it was you who formed my inner parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Y'all, when's the last time you did that? When's the time, last time you just celebrated how God made you? When's the last time you celebrated your body? How your body is strong or capable or able to do things or just amazing? How, when's the last time you looked at something you can do with your body? You know, like jump or run or dance. I'm not going to dance right now. Or birth a baby or eat good food or whatever it is that you can do with your body and, and, and celebrated the goodness of how God made you. When's the last time you looked at the particular way you are, your particular personality, your particular gifts, your particular personality attributes, and just rejoiced in the particular person that God made you to be? See, this is very difficult to do in our time and place because there is a, a lot of pressure to look a certain way and be a certain way and perform a certain way in order to be someone who is truly valued. Sarah and I have a goddaughter named Penny, and Penny has Down syndrome. And when Penny was born, um, it was a surprise that she had Down syndrome, and her parents were at first very um, alarmed about how Penny would end up with a very different kind of life than the one that they imagined their firstborn child would have. But they've come to see Penny in all of her beauty and glory and as the 15-year-old young woman that she is now. And Amy Juliet, in one of her writings, wrote this. She said, I find great comfort in knowing that Penny's life and the act of God forming her life was not a mistake, but was just as purposeful as any other life. This is a great comfort to me, especially when I start asking what-if questions. And then she said this, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made before we are broken, before we are in need of healing. Listen, who you are, friends, the shape of your body, the texture of your hair, the color of your skin, the, the size of your feet, uh, the, the, the nature of your personality, your abilities or even inabilities, all of these things are, are the work of God who treasures you. And it is easy to know this in your head but not believe it in your heart. All of us, I think, have areas of ambivalence and even shame about certain parts of our bodies or embarrassment even about parts of our personalities. 
And we all have ways that we wish we were skinnier or smarter or stronger or more athletic or whatever-er. But this psalm is inviting you to see yourself as God sees you, to, and God, to know yourself as, as God knows you, and to receive the life that is you, and to learn to become effective at being you for God's glory. I think some of you probably need to do the work of claiming the dignity and the value and the worth of who you are as God's created child. So that's the first thing the psalm calls you to be, is to know your goodness. But the second thing I think the psalm calls us to in self-knowledge is pretty different, and that's to know your darkness. Know your darkness. David, it's clear, he's, he not just celebrates the best of who he is and where he's been, but he also talks about the darkest places of who he is and where he's been. He says in verse 11, even the darkness will not be dark to you, and the night is as light before you. He's acknowledging that even the dark places of his life and his soul and his background are known to God. You know, at the end of the psalm, it was... Poor little Avery had to read all that stuff at the end of the psalm about how she hates all of her enemies. I was like, whoa, Avery, that's pretty intense, girl. Um, that's, it, that's called an imprecatory psalm at the end when you, you, David casts down curses on his enemies. And normally we leave that stuff out, but I'm thankful that that's in the psalm because what it shows is that David was so secure in his relationship with God that he didn't feel like he even needed to hide all of the hatred and anger and rage that was rolling around inside of him. He didn't feel like he had to be a certain sort of like godly person who hid that stuff away. He just kind of like exposed all of it, even the anger and the rage and the fear that was within him. And so this is what the psalm is inviting us to do, uh, is to bring our whole self, even the dark places, before God. This is hard for us to do. We're trained from the time we are very young to hide what is wrong and dark in us, and to cover over what is deficient and ugly, and to highlight what is strong and good and beautiful. And we are conditioned, you know, rewarded even, for being strong or smart or pretty or athletic or nice. And you gradually learn to embrace those parts of who you are while ignoring and stuffing aside the not-so-great parts. Let me just speak personally about this. I learned from an early age that I could earn love and praise by being a really good boy. Um, no one ever told me this. I just learned it through the interactions with adults in my life, um, that I could secure love by being really good, and especially through accomplishments and through performance. And the more I accomplished, the more people seemed to like me, and so I just became really good at being this really good boy uh, that I thought people would like, and it helped me feel like I was special, like I was worthy of love. The tragic thing was, by the time I was a teenager and young adult, it was clear that this had put me on this treadmill of performance, and it was, a, it was, it was bondage, um, in which I had to keep up this persona. I had to continue to be the best. I had to continue to be the good boy. And it created in me an unwillingness to name or be honest about the parts of me that weren't good, and it even created really unhealthy behaviors in me, like a propensity to lie or deceive, or an unwillingness to take risks if I thought I might fail, or crippling shame when I did actually fail and was not the best. And it took, really, as an adult, a wise counselor and very patient and wise spouse who helped me see that it was okay to bring my whole self before God. Not just the good boy, uh, but the weak boy 
Not just the successful boy, but the failing boy. The person who doesn't always know what to do. The person who makes mistakes and has a whole lot of anger and fear and negative emotion. And it's okay to bring all of that. And you know, y'all, we all carry around uh, deep, deep darkness in us. Some of this comes from family of origin issues. A friend of mine who's a pastor often says, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandma lives in your bones. (laughs) And (laughs) we have all inherited... um, both positive and a lot of toxic negative patterns in, 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 and uh, even scripts in the way that we navigate the world from our families. Some of this comes from trauma. Some of you had terrible things happen to you that you did not deserve. Others of you had things withheld from you that you did deserve, like love and attachment from trustworthy adults. And some of this has created deep wounds that we carry. And then some of the brokenness in our lives comes from the way that we've learned to handle this pain, either through deceit or defensiveness or through being extra serious and smart or extra funny and stuff our negative emotions or express them dramatically to cope with our pain through negative behaviors or addictive habits. Now, here's the thing. Until you can actually name that darkness and see it, bring it out of hiding under God's loving gaze, it will destroy you. The darkness will destroy you. You know, every once in a while, we have a van that has like 250,000 miles on it, and uh, every once in a while I'll be driving, and I'll just start to hear this knocking in the engine. And I've learned that the very easiest way to handle that is by just turning up the radio. Because uh, <laughs> then I don't hear it anymore. And I think, you know, the car's fine again. But we all know that is a really stupid way to handle engine problems. <laughs> Because it ends up blowing up in your face. And this is what happens, friends. Richard Rohr says, pain in your life that is not transformed will be transmitted. It will be given off to others. And when you see someone that is hurting other people or harming other people or harming themselves, it's usually because they have not done this work of self-examination. So the psalm gives us a model of how to bring our whole self to God. Both the good and the bad, the glory and the shame, the beauty and the brokenness. You will never be transformed, become the whole and free person that God wants you to be, unless those parts that are most marred are exposed and open to God's love. And that leads to the final thing, and that is that God, this psalm calls us to know your belovedness. What's clear is that David recognizes that God does see everything. Everything. That's scary. When I I know that there's stuff in my life, in my heart, in my thoughts, that I would never want any of you, any of you to ever know. (laughs) It is really scary to see that God knows all of it, and yet he loves. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Y'all, one of the deepest longings of the human heart is to be unconditionally known and unconditionally loved. And yet we all fear deep down that if I were truly known, if you truly knew everything about me, saw into my heart and mind, you would want nothing to do with me. And so we learn that if we're really going to be loved, we have to hide who we really are. This is why dating is so terrible, because you basically hide the worst parts about yourself, because otherwise, why would this person ever want to commit to you, right? And yet David, we see David proclaim what all of us long for, that before God we are fully known, completely and utterly seen, and yet utterly 
loved, that he loves you with a depth and a persistence and an intensity beyond imagination, that he does not simply tolerate you or just like you or have warm affection for you, but that he loves you with a passionate, absorbed desire. That's what the gospel is, that God loves us so much that in the person of Jesus, he lived our life, bore our shame, carried our guilt, died our death, rose for our hope. To see this loving gaze upon you means that you are safe, safe to be yourself, safe to come out of the dark, safe to finally be whole. Andreas Ebert writes, many avoid the path of self-knowledge because they are afraid of being swallowed up in their own abysses. But Christians have confidence that Christ has lived through all the abysses of human life and that he goes with us when we dare to engage in sincere confrontation with ourselves. Because God loves us unconditionally, along with our dark sides, we don't need to dodge ourselves. In the light of this love, the pain of self-knowledge can be at the same time the beginning of our healing. We are so secure in the love of God that even the darkest places come become places where God's love can meet us and begins to heal. So let me just end the sermon by talking about some practices. How can we practice this work of self-examination? Let me first talk just about a simple way to do some personal work of self-examination. There's an old ancient practice called examine. Examine. And it's basically just a form of prayer that uses reflection and memory to reflect back on your day to see how God has been involved in your life and how you respond to him. So it works like this. I usually do this at the end of the day. Um, literally while I'm falling asleep. It just takes a few moments, a few minutes. Um, and it works like this. You begin with um, preparation, preparation, where you just simply acknowledge that you're in God's presence. And no matter what kind of day you had or what kind of feelings you felt, God is there with you and you're held and secure in his love. You then move to a brief review of the day where you remember you know, your experiences, meals you had, conversations, interactions you had, feelings that you felt. You're literally putting into practice Psalm 103. You know my comings and goings. And you're remembering this, that God has been present with you throughout the day. Then you just do a brief time of thanksgiving. Maybe just pick out one or two things that you want to say thank you to for God, especially about the particular shape of your life. You know, maybe a run that you went on and the way that God let you use your body. Or maybe a problem uh, that you helped solve or which God helped you use your mind or a relationship that you're in. You're expressing gratitude for the life that is yours. Fourth, face your shortcomings. Honestly reflect on the moments you felt out of tune with God, something you said or did, something you didn't say or didn't do, a way you could have acted differently. What do you need forgiveness for? Do you need to make things right with someone else? Talk to God about it. Receive his grace. And then finally, look to the day ahead. Remember that God will be with you in all things large and small and trust your whole life, everything in it, good and bad, into his hands. This is just a simple way that you can begin to live a whole life before God, everything about you and everything in you. Now, often what happens is that there will be something maybe particularly significant, a reaction or experience that you know wasn't right. Maybe a reaction you had, you lost your temper, uh, maybe you felt really embarrassed or ashamed, maybe you got really angry um, or really hurt by someone's comments. Sometimes we need to do a little deeper work of a particular experience, a reaction. So sometimes I do what's called a examine of a reaction, where you look at a particular situation and you ask these questions. What happened? What am I feeling? 
What is the story I'm telling myself? What does the gospel say? What action is needed? Let me just give you an example of this that just happened to me last week. So uh, my family, we were on vacation, and we were driving through a new city. Sarah was driving. I was navigating. I like to think of myself as a very competent navigator, which really just these days involves reading a phone. Um, <laughs> but we were driving, and um, at some point, there were like three roads, and I just like pointed and said, that way. Uh, and Sarah was like, that's really unhelpful. Um, <laughs> and I just, um, yeah, I just like blew up. I was like, I'm so sick of you criticizing my directions. And I threw the phone into the console. Yeah, it was really stupid. And, um, and I was thinking about it later because at the time I ignored it. And then when I was doing my review at the end of the day, I thought about it. And you know, work through these questions. What happened? Um, I had a disproportionate reaction of anger when Sarah told me I was giving bad directions. Uh, what was I feeling? Well, I felt anger, but when I thought about it a little bit, I realized that beneath the anger was shame. What story am I telling myself? Well, this is the story I tell myself every day, that if I don't do everything right and show that I am fully good and competent at everything, then I am defective and not worthy of love. What does the gospel say? The gospel says, I don't have to be the best at everything, that I can fail, that I can fail big things and small things, because my life is not identified by those things, but by the love of God. So what action is needed? Well, I need to apologize to my family and probably actually admit that I'm bad at giving directions and stop living in a lie. Now, I'm not saying that I do that well at all. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's only one time that I actually thought through this out of a thousand. Um, but what I'm saying is, if you never stop and you never do self-reflection, then these, the splitness in you only deepens and widens. And you end up with a life that is not whole. And so I exhort you to that. One last thing I'll say is that you also need to do not just personal work, but communal work of self-examination. Just like sometimes you need a friend to tell you when you have spinach in your teeth, sometimes you need a friend to tell you when you've got darkness in your soul. <laughs> because honestly, you can't see everything about yourself that is most hurtful. Um, unfortunately, it's rare for churches to be transparent communities. We often create what Diedrich Bonhoeffer calls pious fellowships, where it's nice Christian people basically pretending and masquerading with one another. Um, but the gospel creates a new kind of community, one of vulnerability in which we can take off our masks, not literally <laughs> right now, but to take off our masks and come out of the dark and be honest and transparent with each other. Um, that can look like, first of all, simple spiritual friendship. Um, it's vital to have a couple people in your life who you can be brutally honest with about everything and you can be completely transparent with. It should be someone who is trustworthy. Um, and someone who knows sin and grace enough so that when you say things to them, they're not like, oh my gosh, you did what? You thought what? It should be someone who knows themselves well enough, who knows themselves well enough that every weakness in sin in you, they see also in themselves. And so it's important that we have at least a couple people in your life, spiritual friends that you can accompany with. Also, I will say this, there are some things in your life, I've talked about some heavy stuff today, and there are some things in your life that are places of such tr trial and darkness that you need more help, uh, especially when it has to do with family histories and trauma that we carry. 
Many of us would benefit from the work of a wise therapist or counselor uh, to work through patterns and scripts that have stuck with us for a long time. Um, unfortunately, in the church, we're still dealing with a lot of stigma and silence around mental health um, and a prevailing culture of silence and really misguided attitudes that often ends up really hurting people and creating a lot of shame and blame for people. But friends, part of the gospel revolution of truth and wholeness that we need is to push and reject that stigma, reject the silence, encourage people. I encourage you to get the help that you might need. As someone who has had my own share of mental health struggles, I will tell you that the help of a kind and compassionate Christian therapist has been one of the greatest gifts of my life. So I would exhort you to that as well. Friends, the good life is a life of being known by loving God and in turn knowing yourself. And the purpose of this is not self-flagellation or guilt or shame. The purpose is wholeness, to be free, of being available entirely to God for his work in you. That's the invitation. Are you ready to do the work that this requires? Are you ready to be whole? Are you ready to be free? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness that you have made us good and that before we are sinners, we are your beloved good creations. We also see the ways that we have been marred by sin, be either our own or especially the way we talked about today, the way others have sinned against us. So we pray, God, that we would have the courage to name the darkness, to talk about it with other people, and to let your light flood into every part of our lives for your healing and freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name.